Welcome to Death Do Us Part Podcast, hosted by my wife, Jamie. Hello. And myself, Mark. What up, y'all? Hey. Hey, episode 43. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yeah, I think so. Kind of. It's okay. kind of a shitty day out, isn't it? Yeah, the sun's just now fucking coming out. I know. Whatever. It's been raining all day. Um, Feeling like shit. My throat is fucking crap right now. Yeah. Damn I'm, it. I'm very nasally. Ugh. So. Just a gross day. Yeah, it is. So. Whatever. Uh. So you guys might hear our dog again. Leah's not home once again. She's at a school dance so poor chance he's he's he's, been uh, no he's been walked more today than he's been walked in probably a week oh yeah so well he was sleeping earlier but now he's yeah so so guys how how do we get him to stop whining yeah please somebody tell us he is the biggest whiner ever about everything everything constantly whining it's oof but whatever. Who are you blowing up? I'm trying to log on to Patreon. Oh. Oh. Because we... I'm fucking trash. That's why. Yeah, you are. I am. Mm, I just didn't... a bit. And you fucking rush me and... <sighs> Take a sip. I know. Take a puff. I know I should. <laughs> I don't remember my password. Hey, so Fox went really well. Oh my God, it was so good. Yeah, if you guys saw it, it turned out better than we thought yeah and we even got a surprise fox tampa i think 13 mm-hmm. fox 13 they're an affiliate of fox 32 in chicago and tampa did the story or aired our segment as well today right it, it was either today or yesterday i actually got a message from one of my uh, cop buddies who was visiting his mom which is so funny down there and he sent me a screenshot of uh the tv and he's like you guys are famous down here They're isn't that crazy it. yeah so that's pretty cool yeah that was a surprise people want to hear us i know i don't know why so okay um all right i think Business. we're just gonna have to accept the fact that i'm trash and i'll have to shout out the new patreons um on the next episode, because I'm... You can't get it? No. I don't... I don't know. We have we have several new Patreons, and it's fabulous. I love you guys. You guys are fucking amazing, and I'm sorry that I'm trash and I didn't grab my computer. Um, we'll, we'll give a shout-out on the next episode yeah. oh, with for all sure. the Patreons. For sure. Because I think we have, you said, like three new ones. Three or four, yeah. So far, so. Yeah, we'll, so. We'll, we'll do it on the next episode. We'll give yeah. you a nice shout out. I don't, but, re- I don't remember my passwords for anything. <laughs> like, everything's touched on my computer, so I don't have to remember anything. But you guys are great. Thank you for supporting us. You're clearly better than I am. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but this oh. is the reason why we do it for you guys. So, you know, thank you so much for supporting us. See, you can be nice. Yeah, yeah. I can. that was nice. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay. So the Patreons know that last week we started the episode with um, a correction. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do it again because this is this is the, the one that everybody hears. Yeah. Um, on the Samantha Herrer episode, which got a lot of uh, oh yeah attraction, uh, good and bad. Mm-hmm. So. I mistakenly said that my friend Jess worked for Westcom. 
My friend Jess has never worked for Westcom. She worked for Norcom. She worked for, I believe, Norcom. Or, like I said before, it was by me at the time. Um, I, I apparently upset somebody, despite the fact that I did not say any last names. And I said, my friend. And somebody was clearly pissed off at me who doesn't know me. So why would I call you my friend? But Right. So there's my correction. My friend, Jess, never worked for Westcom. It's just funny when truths come out, people get upset. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't want to piss people off. I don't. That's not my intention. If right. I do, then I do. It's not on purpose. It's not, you know, intentful. It's just it's going to happen. I get it. But the way that this person responded makes you wonder yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It was not a simple Hey, can you clarify this? It was a take the fucking name out, fix the fucking podcast. I'm going to send you a message two times a day for the next seven days. Fix it. Fix it. Fix it. Fix it. Okay. Yeah. We said we we will. will. (laughs) (laughs) We will. We don't do this every fucking day. Right. And I'm not going to put out an episode just to make a correction. Right. So I apologize that I've upset you, but... Clearly, there's a bigger reason that you're upset, and it doesn't have to do with me necessarily. Right. So. We'll leave it at that. That's my correction. And I think it's funny, too, um, the reporter who. Oh, yeah. From the Julia Patch. So we. Clearly hated us. Yeah. (laughs) Said our language was. Foul. Foul. uh, Inappropriate. Yeah. And And if we wanted people to like us, we should stop swearing. Yeah. So I. Kindly said. That's why people like us. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry, was, bro. That's like, uh, that's why people like us and tune in. So. I, I wasn't like, I know sorry, you were. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, I know you were pissed about it. I wasn't pissed about it. I was upset because I wanted like I wanted you to listen to the content. The, well, that's the of thing. Of the actual podcast. Yeah, I don't Not give that a I shit. say fuck like a comma. Yes. Who cares? You, you miss the purpose of right. it. Right. Yeah, we swear. Right. It's 2022. Right. What fucking podcast doesn't? I'm a bitter old fucking woman. Do you expect but, me not to swear? What podcast doesn't? And I'm sorry if you listen to other ones that don't speak the truth. Right. You know, he's telling us how we should run it. Dude, I, I, I'm not I, that's asking That's not what that. I was looking for. I wanted to include you in on the content because he had done so much work on the case. Yeah. So I was a little disappointed that yeah. that was the only response we got from him. Yeah. He said his, our, our swearing took away from it. So yeah. whatever, dude. So... Yeah. Sorry, I swear. I'm not taking I'm, it back. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I was just a little disappointed that that was the reaction that we got. Yeah. So. Whatever. Yeah, that was. Uh, so thank the rest of you guys yeah. who actually enjoyed it and, you know, were up in arms about it. Yeah. And I, a lot of people are now. Yeah. A, a friend of mine was on a little road trip and texted me. Yeah. I have all of the questions. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. And we spent like. An hour talking about it the other day. So I, I hope others listen. I hope this really does get out there. I know we're probably going to do a second episode on yeah, it. Yeah, especially because, with what I found out the other day. Oh, okay. And so, I mean, I just figured because from people talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we had tons of people oh, yeah. messaging us, mm-hmm. calling us. Mm-hmm. Like it, and that it was the point. The right. yeah, and, that, and that was the point. It's exactly it what I pot. wanted to do put information out mm-hmm. there that people don't know 
Right. And get her name out. Or people are not supposed to know. Yeah. And I think that might have been the issue. Right. That I said something that I shouldn't have known. Right. Oh, well. Yeah. That's the whole point. I try to find stuff that people don't know. Yep. So, yeah. Hmm. I want to say something, but I'll I'll leave it at that. We both want to say it. You know what? Uh, Other people have said it for us. Yeah. So. Yeah. (laughs) We're good. Um. Yeah, so that, yeah, really <laughs> chapped my ass. Yeah. So. It was a good talk. Yeah. <laughs> so any other business? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think so. Well. Patreons that I'm trash. Uh, okay. The Patreons heard a good one. The James, James Jordan? Jordan, yeah. It that was one good. was fucked up. Yeah. There was there was more to it. I don't I'm torn on that one still. Guys, I'm telling you the the ones you you got to sign up for. I'm I'm sorry, but they're yeah. good. They're good. We mm-hmm. just did James Jordan for our Patreons and it was interesting. Yep. I don't know what so, we're doing for our next Patreon. Uh <clears throat> I thought we agreed on Waco. Oh, that's right, we did. Yeah, so our next Patreon episode um that will be coming up will be Waco, mm-hmm. Texas. That's so fucked up too. That's very fucked up. So yeah. again, sign up if you you know if you want to hear. There's three different t- tiers that you can choose from. But all tiers get the bonus episodes. Yes, all tiers you get to hear. You have all access to all the episodes. And we are going to do another like live Q and A. Yeah. And hopefully more people join in for that because yeah. that was kind of fun. A lot. I I think it was because we didn't, you didn't promote it longer. I, d- I did for a week. <laughs> well, everybody forgot. Yeah. Uh, so. But I don't know. whatever. It is what it is. So what you got for us today, Mama? I got the yogurt shop murders, and which this- anybody in true crime knows what I'm talking about. And this was a request, too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that we're doing now are it's fucking a request. requests. Yeah. So. Which is perfect, because yeah. there's days where we look at each other like, Duh. what are we going to do? Like, I know what I want to do, and he knows what he wants me to do, but yeah. it doesn't mesh ever. But this one is interesting, so. Yeah. So this one is still, um, it's unsolved. Hmm. Yeah. It's cold. It's a cold case. Uh, it took place in Texas. So we have a lot of listeners in Texas. We do. This was what, so. Austin? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think we're done with business, so why don't you yeah. uh, just get into it? Um, If I get scratchy, I'll have to take a break, just so you know. Which, by the way, the one we th- said we were going to do next, I don't think I'm going to do. <laughs> I want to do something else. Weren't we gonna do the brown? Yeah, I want to do some. I don't want to do two restaurants back to back. Okay, so and we'll change that up. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that one after Waco. Yeah, Waco's gonna be good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, December sixth, nineteen ninety one, Sergeant John Jones was working his shift with the Austin Police Department. Uh, when he signed in, he knew he was the only homicide detective working that night, and he also had a local news crew writing with him. Uh, they were doing a piece on homicide in Texas. Uh, the news crew made a comment about being excited to go to Houston the following day and see some real crime because they hadn't really done much. 
1148, Officer Troy Gay was out patrolling for drunk drivers. He saw a fire coming from the North Cross Mall, called it into dispatch, and headed over that way. When Officer Gay got closer to the scene, he was flagged down by Jorge Barney. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop was on fire with smoke blocking visibility into the windows. Jorge owned the party shop next door, said smoke was in his shop, and he had opened the back door to let it out. Austin Fire Department Station 8 was dispatched to the shop for a structure fire. They responded with a ladder truck, an engine, an ambulance, a battalion chief car, and a victim's specialist team. Uh, Renee Hector Garza and David DeVoe made up the victim's specialist team, and they were the first ones into the shop. They forced entry uh, into the front door using a crowbar. Uh, Because of the smoke, they immediately got on their hands and knees and crawled to the back room looking for the source of the fire. When they got to the back room, they were able to stand up and extinguish the fire, uh, determining that the hottest spot was in the storeroom up the south wall. Putting out the fire obviously created steam and limited visibility, and the men are used to this. They're in full gear. Mm -hmm. You know, they're used to communicating via hand signals. I got to move my microphone. Um, But DeVoe saw something and couldn't use a hand signal, so he tapped his partner on the shoulder and yelled through his mask, quote, is that a foot? They reported two victims uh, to their crew. They were young, they were kids, and they were nude. Garza told the rescue team not to move the bodies because obviously something's fucking wrong. Wrong. Uh, Around midnight, Sergeant Jones got the call about the fire and two fatalities. Immediately after that, they corrected it to three fatalities. So they had found a third body. Jesus. Uh, Just before his arrival to the scene, they called back and said that they had found a fourth body. Oh, my God. The four fatalities were identified as 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, her 15-year-old sister Sarah, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, and 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Jennifer and Eliza worked at the shop, and Sarah and Amy were hanging out waiting for a ride home. Um, So a little bit about the girls. Um, Jennifer was born on May 9th, 1974, followed shortly by Sarah Louise who was born on October 28th, 1976, to parents Mike and Barbara, living in the region of, this is the best word I've heard all day. Yeah. Texarkana. Yeah. I've never fucking heard yeah. that before, because it borders Texas, Arkansas, and Kansas. Yeah. Amazing. You've what? never heard of that? Can we move there? I don't You're like, no. To, but <laughs> yeah, babe. Um, I never I can't, heard, I can't I've never heard of that. Wow. Yeah. So when the girls were five and two, respectively, their parents separated and mom moved to Austin with the girls. In 1980... Austin is one of the best places ever. That's what everybody says. Yeah, I gotta admit it. It's amazing. So in 1980, Barbara married Frank Skip... uh, Shit. Scarani? Yeah. Serrani. Just call him Skip. Sirachi. That's what it is. Just call him Skip. (laughs) I'm fucking handwriting. Hey, Skip. Um, Their dad had also remarried to a woman named Debbie. He lived a couple hours away, but he did remain active in their lives. Um, Both girls attended private school through middle school at St. Louis Catholic Church, Uh, but it was decided that they would go to high school at a public school. Mm. The girls were excited because they thought they were going to get the full teenage experience. So they were going to be attending Lanier High School. Uh, By the time Jennifer was a senior, she was on the varsity cross-country team, 
president of the school's chapter of the FFA, which is the Future Farmers of America. Yeah. She was the district chapter's vice president and was currently raising sheep to show at the Austin Livestock and Rodeo Show in the spring. Wow. She was bitty. She was five feet and 86 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It's my leg. Yeah. It's my right leg. (laughs) So... Uh, Sarah, fo- Sarah followed Jennifer to Lanier High School. Uh, by the time she was a sophomore, she was a leader of the JV cheer team and a student council representative. She played basketball and volleyball and was known for fouling out of every basketball game she played in. Physical. So uh, she was also heavily, heavily involved in the FFA. And she had just been given uh, the senior ring of her brand new boyfriend of three weeks. Ooh. So a senior ring is like kinda, a class ring, I would imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. after three weeks? At, was it, you know, well, they're teenagers. Sure. Okay. It's a different time then. Right. Uh, Eliza Hope Thomas was born May 16th, 1974, to parents James and Maria, followed by a sister named Sonora. I love that name. Sonora? Sonora. Hmm. Um. In 1981, her parents separated and eventually divorced. Eliza stayed with her mom primarily, and Sonora primarily stayed with their dad. Eliza was attending Lanier High School after transferring from McCollum High School because she wanted to get involved in Lanier's FFA chapter. Uh, She met Jennifer through that. They became fast friends. Eliza was very mechanically inclined, taking welding and engine uh, repair classes along with agricultural mechanical classes. Mm. Farming equipment? Yeah. Is that what that means? Yeah, I would think so. So, um, where, oh. so both Eliza and Jennifer were nominated for FFA Queen. That's another thing that they bonded oh. over. Uh, Eliza was uh, working, you know, she was able to buy her first car, which was a green Volkswagen Carmen Kia. It's a fucking awful car. I don't even know what I, it is. It's awful. They don't make them anymore, but it was bright green. She fucking loved it. It was mm. the best thing ever. She worked on it all the time, doing upgrades when she could, and wanted car parts for Christmas. Mm. Um, she was also kind of girly, though. She collected lipstick and knickknacks. Yeah. So for her part of the FFA, she was raising a 254-pound pig named Stormy, mm-hmm. who required twice-daily injections. Mm-hmm. My, so, my buddy has a, a pig. I, how I, cool I've is showed that? you on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Just a huge fucking... <laughs> Pig just, just sprawled out. Yeah, sprawled mm-hmm. out on his kitchen floor. It's hilarious. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I kind of want one. There was one when I was at the fire department. Oh, really? Yeah, huge. Wow. Yeah. Um, Amy Lee Ayers was born January 31st, 1978. Two parents, Robert and Pam. Amy Lee, I like that name. Following her older brother, Sean. Mm. Um, so she had been riding horses since she was three. Loved country music and had a crush on George Strait. Oh, okay. Same girl, same. Uh, Amy got involved in the FFA pretty early because of her brother, Sean, and was actually attending the Lanier uh, High School's chapter of the FFA, despite attending Burnett Middle School. What's up? Uh, I hit my stand goal, but I'm not standing. So, Yeah, cool. you're sitting. Um, Amy became fast friends with Jennifer and Eliza, but best friends with Sarah, despite mm-hmm. the fact that she was younger. It didn't matter. Yeah. So Eliza had been working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop for months when she told Jennifer to come work there. 
Jennifer needed a job after her dad bought her a brand new, well, I don't think it was a brand new, it was a brand new to her, a dark blue S10 Chevy pickup under the conditions that she helped make the payments, and she was to be her sister's bitch and drive her anywhere she wanted to go. Just like Leah. I was going to say, listen up, Leah. Uh... So the yogurt shop really was the only place with real responsibility where they were allowed to work unsupervised and often close the shop by themselves. Yeah. Not a big deal, right? Right. Um, so Austin was like a bubble within Texas. It was a nice, quiet place to raise a family um, without really having to worry about the downsides of the large city, namely violent crimes, which was pretty much unheard of in Austin. Yeah. Until December 6th of 1991. Okay. Uh, the day started off like any other day. Jennifer and Sarah drove uh, to take care of their sheep, which were being held in, um, at a farm on donated land. It would be one of their uh, first of two daily stops. Mm. Eliza's pig was held at the same place. So yeah. they would go in the morning before school and then in the evening. Okay. Um, that's a lot of commitment. That, that kind of is. It's a lot of commitment. It was like yeah. three miles from their house. So it wasn't like super far, but still. Yeah, still. I don't Ugh. know. Yeah. I don't even want to make my own coffee in the morning. <laughs> I know. Fuck. I don't even want to get up. No. No. Ugh. Ugh. So they took care of the sheep and then they went home and got ready for school. Eliza also went and took care of Stormy and um, her and Amy went to school like normal. After school, Jennifer gave Sarah's new boyfriend a ride home. She then dropped off Sarah and went to her boyfriend's house. Uh, his name was Sammy and he had missed school that day because of his grandfather's funeral. So she really wanted to see him. Um, after that, she needed to go pick up her wallet from her friend's house and then had to go back to school to put in her application for FFA queen. Mm. So you're nominated for it, but then you have to like put what? I don't yeah. know. That's bullshit. sure. <laughs> so her plan was to be home by seven so she could make her shift at the yogurt shop by eight. Yeah. Uh, at four o'clock, Sarah's mom saw her on the couch eating an orange, happy that she didn't have sports over the weekend. She did have plans to go to the North Cross Mall. Um... And then have a sleepover with mm -hmm. Amy. Uh, at 6.30, Eliza got ready for work and then left for her shift in a good mood, but she was nervous about it. Uh, she had worked the night before covering for another girl and had received prank calls from her ex-boyfriend's friend. It wasn't anything bad. It was just he was calling and asking about every fucking flavor of yogurt. Oh, that's so bad. he was just being a butthole, you know. Yeah. So um. She started at 7, got in, put her shit in the office, and then put the key back on top of the register. That's where the office key was kept. Right. Uh, as Jennifer was getting ready to leave for work, she was told she had to take Sarah and pick up Amy. So Jennifer drops the girls off at the mall and heads to work. Eliza was working the register. Jennifer was working the counter. Uh, at this time of night, it's 8 o'clock. I mean, it's not super late, but there's only three other businesses open around in the area. Yeah. Um, or only three businesses, excuse me. The oh, yogurt yeah. shop. Uh, Sun Harvest Grocery Shop and Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. Yeah. Let me get some pizza. Right. Um, from 8.15 to 8.30. Um, I've seen this name reported as two different ways. Mm -hmm. Lucella and Lucille Jones mm -hmm. uh, came to the shop and saw only two other cars in the parking lot, which belonged to the girls. However, there were two boys sitting at a booth closest to the door. Um, they were approximately 14 to 17 years old, possibly white or Hispanic. She said they looked like hippies. <laughs> so, and they were staring, um, almost fixated on a sack on the table. So your pot? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a yogurt shop. Yeah. That's where I'm fucking going. Oh, yeah. 
Load them sprinkles. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Fuck, I went Load TCBY tonight, man. Uh, I was never a fan. Damn, I love it. Never a fan. The white chocolate mousse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Lucille would later tell police that she wanted to ask the girls if they were okay working so late. Uh, but after seeing them laughing and talking, she figured they were fine, bought a Sunday for her husband, and left. Uh, at 9 o'clock, Jennifer took her break and picked up Sarah and Amy from the mall and brought them back to the shop. They were just going to hang out and help them close so they could get out on time. Yeah. Uh, the two girls grabbed a pizza from Mr. Gotti's before it closed at That's right. 10. That doesn't... Fuck yeah. Dude, pizza and yogurt? Yeah. Yes! Seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a great time at the mall. Um, it was the first time that they had ever been allowed to go there alone. Ooh. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. I don't think I ever went to the mall specifically as a kid. I did. Yeah. Well, you I were did. right by Orland Mall, so, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Before it <clears throat> had so many problems. Yeah. So Eliza's mom uh, stopped by the shop at 930. Her and other witnesses would later state that they remember seeing two girls at a table eating pizza. Sarah and Amy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eliza was on the phone with Sonora trying to get her to ride her bike up to the shop to hang out. She, Sonora was 13 at the time. Yeah. Um, she said no, she was home alone, and she didn't want to leave without her father's permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after that, Jennifer's boyfriend calls to confirm a breakfast date the next morning, which should be a fucking thing, by the way. <laughs> Just saying. Pancakes. Yes. Weight Watchers. Hey, you're doing that. I know. So you're for, doing a good job, though. The pancakes and yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I'm right at that stage where I'm ready to, like, yeah. say fuck it. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 9.30 to 10, Daryl Croft came into the shop. He knew Eliza and her mom from the gym. He was a former military police and had was currently the owner of a security company. So he was accustomed to being a little more attentive yeah. to his surroundings, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daryl vividly remembers a fidgety young white guy in line in front of him. Uh, he was early to mid-20s, 5'10 to 6 feet tall, 150 pounds, wearing a green military jacket. Uh, he asked Daryl about his car, which had um, like a light bar on it. Yeah. And asked if he owned a security company. He then tries to order a 7-Up. They say they only have Sprite. He takes it and then asks Eliza if he can use the bathroom. Um, To get to the bathroom, you have to go behind the counter and into the back. Yeah. Daryl asks Eliza where he was going. She says the bathroom, then says she shouldn't really let people back there, but dude said he had to go really bad. The bathrooms are actually public, though. So I think they were kind of like, don't let people back there if you don't have to, just because it's just you guys right. kind of thing. Right. So um, his spidey sense was like tingling. Mm. He just, he didn't have a good feeling about the guy. So he was, he was hanging around. He was stalling to leave. Yeah. Um, but could only stall so long yeah. and finally ended up having to leave before dude came out of the bathroom. Right. Um, when he did leave, though, he was so preoccupied, he, he forgot his yogurt and Eliza had to yell at him to get his attention. Uh, Maria leaves shortly after Daryl, and shortly after that, Eliza's dad and stepmom come into the shop for about 15 minutes. Uh, they recall talking about her economics class and seeing two girls eating pizza in a booth. Mm-hmm. So, they're there. Yeah. Um, from 9.30 to 10.30, more customers come in, two women and a few couples. Uh, included in that were regulars. Yeah, that's what I want to be. Regular at yogurt shop. Uh, Joseph Sonter and Ava Reed, they came in about 10. 
They briefly talked to the girls about the FFA and then left. What time does this shop close? 11. Okay. Uh, Another customer would later say at approximately 1030, they saw a white or Hispanic male sitting in an older white vehicle in front of the shop doing absolutely fucking nothing. Mm. Just sitting there. Uh, Another couple would say that they saw a suspicious van in the parking lot around 1030 to 1130. Vans in general are, are suspicious. suspicious. Yep. <laughs> just, just in general. Yeah. They're creepy. Oh, yeah. They're raper vans. The Astro vans. But, oof. Yep. Well, they have no fucking windows. I know. Like, ugh. No. So, I don't, I mean, you could be fucking Mother Teresa. If you're driving a van, you're going to be fucking suspicious. <laughs> right. So, uh, next to the yogurt shop is a party store, which shared attic space and an office wall with the shop. Mm-hmm. Now, normally on Fridays, this place closes at 7, but the store owner, Jorge Barkley, stayed late to get ahead of the holiday rush. Yeah. He heard a noise on the roof at about 10.30, but that's it. Didn't hear anything else. Uh, He would be the first to see smoke other than the officer, but said he didn't hear anything, including gunshots. Um, At... Oh, I wrote the wrong time. At 10.42, Eliza rang up the last purchase of the night for uh, Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan. They had just left a movie and wanted to get some dessert. Um, They wanted to eat there, but obviously didn't because they were getting ready to close. Um, They reported seeing two customers. Uh, It was two large people. They had hoods on, so she couldn't tell if they were male or female. Sitting in a booth closest to the register, one was larger than the other. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much all they could tell about them. Uh, Eliza was behind the counter, and Jennifer started cleaning tables, putting up chairs, and filling napkin holders. Uh, Margaret noticed the two customers were uh, very still and seemed to be listening to the girls talking. Yeah. Uh, they didn't see Sarah or Amy, but did see a pizza box on the main sink. Sarah and Amy were actually in the back uh, doing dishes and filling the toppings containers. So Tim and Margaret then leave the store at uh, 1047. When they left, the two men were still sitting in, or the two people were still sitting in the booth. Um, Generally, at 10 minutes to 11, they changed the sign from closed and locked the door. Mm -hmm. People inside can get out, but nobody can get in. So we're assuming that's what happened. Okay. Um, And then when they go to leave for the night, you know, they would lock the door from the outside, put the key in an envelope, and then slide the envelope back under the door. Yeah. So after locking the door on the inside, they left the key in the lock because it was the same lock that would lock the outside. Yeah. Um, Jennifer then pulled the stool over to the yogurt machines and took off the top, getting it ready to be cleaned. Again, this is assumed because this was their normal procedure. This is what they would do when they would work together. Okay. So it's also assumed that she was close to the register with her back to the door. Eliza was wiping down counters with a rag. And then something happened. Mm. Uh, The ladder and the rag were abandoned, and a witness stated that the lights were still on in the shop after 11. Okay. At 11.03, the no sale button on the register was pushed, which means um, that's how you open the drawer if there's no transaction. Okay. So somebody got into the register at 11.03. Okay. Uh, It was later discovered that $540 was missing from the register. At 11.48, the fire was first noticed. Um, Excuse me. The arson investigator would later say that the fire started at 11.42. So it's 39 minutes from the time the no sale button was hit to the fire. Okay. 
Um, but the fire was noticed six minutes later, and they all got on scene immediately. So, like, these people had to have left immediately. Yeah. Before they came. Yeah. So, I've been, th- I've been thinking about that all fucking day. Like, how close it was. Yeah. So. Yeah, it really was. Um, so, the investigators... Um, they found that the back door was unlocked, but the office keys were still by the register, so nobody got into the office. Uh, investigators believe the suspects either entered through the unlocked back door or were already in the shop. Uh, they're certain, though, that they left through the back door because it was the only fucking way out. Yeah. All four girls were found in the back of the shop. It's going to get a little graphic over the next, like, 15 minutes. Um, investigators believe the girls were forced by gunpoint to undress. They were then bound and gagged with their clothing. You got to do a trigger warning. Yeah, it's um, I yeah yeah. There's a couple bad things coming up. So if obviously we're going to be talking about murder and possible sexual assault. So if young fast forward if you need to. Um, all four girls were shot in the head execution style. However, Amy was shot twice. Hmm. Uh, Eliza, Jennifer, and Sarah were found closer to the back door while Amy was found closer to the prep tables and bathrooms. Um, <clears throat> it appears that the girls were stacked on top of each other. Jesus. Um, it is it is guesstimated that Amy didn't die right away, that she crawled off the stack and tried okay. to get out of the back door, Yeah. which is why she was found away from the girls by the back door. Okay. So Sarah was on the bottom. Um, her legs were spread and there was an ice cream scoop placed in between her legs. Eliza was on top of Sarah. Uh, it was assumed that Jennifer was on top of Eliza, excuse me, and Amy was on top of her. Uh, Jennifer was actually found to the side of the two girls in what is later described as an unnatural position. Mm -hmm. And they believe that she was either moved by the fire hose or she rolled off when Amy rolled off right basically right um <clears throat> she did um she had ligature marks on her neck and she was the most badly burned hmm. amy was the least burned but the most battered Jeez. she was found with a ligature around her neck she had been manually but not fatally strangled she had bruising under her chin as if she had been punched like an uppercut mm-hmm. she had a gunshot wound to the top left of her head with a 22 and one behind her left ear with a 380. Jesus. So there's two different guns. Um, because of the crime scene contamination from the fire, Sergeant Jones insisted the bodies be processed at the scene before being moved. Um, he was concerned about further contamination and losing trace evidence. Yeah, leave it on that one. I can see. Uh, yeah, the light was yeah, going about crazy. About to have a seizure. Yeah. Uh, the chief medical examiner was out of town at the time, so the deputy medical examiner, Les Carpenter, would be doing the case. Um, so at the time in Texas, the medical examiners weren't doctors. Oh, really? So, yeah, because huh. he doesn't do the autopsy. Um, he was known to have a big ego and was a stickler for the rules. Yeah. So he denied Sergeant Jones' request, which wasn't a request, Um, And said that they were his bodies and he would handle it. Hmm. Um, Jones got a new partner for the case. His name was Mike Huckabee. Um, I just want to note that I wrote Mark Huckabee because of Mike, because that's your brother's name. And I just, yeah. (laughs) So um, 
He was more senior than Jones and had better negotiating skills. So he was able to get the deputy ME to agree to leaving the bodies. Um, but dude was a giant dick about it. Yeah. So he stood over the Austin PD guys processing the scene, talking shit to them, and repeatedly threatened to, quote, pack up the girls right then and there. Dude, put your dinghy away. Yeah. Come on. Um, it's suspected, actually, by many investigators that Carpenter's hindrance was detrimental to the case in many ways. Because uh, oh. you're a fucking douche and people can't pay attention to what they're doing. Yeah, right. I know nothing about that. <laughs> um, the media arrived in minutes. Mm. Sergeant Jones gave a very short statement, would only say it was being considered homicide because it appeared that a victim had been hit in the head. Uh, the girls' cars were still in the lot, so it was obviously they're like, well, it's these two, yeah, you know. And then the two younger ones, it was assumed, you know, right. that they were there. Right. Um, when their parents were notified, Amy's mom's first thought when she saw the police was that Amy had been sexually assaulted. Mm. Uh, Barbara was Sarah and Jennifer's mom and insisted that the girls were upstairs sleeping, which she knew they weren't, you know. Right. Um, when Barbara called their dad. Uh, all she heard was screaming, and then the line went dead. Ugh. Sergeant uh, John Jones had more than 150 death investigations under his belt, but these girls would be his last four. He never wanted to be a cop. Um, he applied on a whim after losing his job waiting tables. Really? He, yeah, he was a music, music education major at the University of Texas. Wow. Uh, he decided to stay in law enforcement, though, after realizing that the benefits were much better than music education. Yeah, I bet. So... Uh, Jones, did I say Huckabee earlier? It's Huckabee, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Jones, and, Jones and Huckabee had a work relationship from working previous cases together. Uh, they were both fathers of daughters and trusted each other. Okay. So Jones had actually requested him to come help. Okay. Uh, they made a pact at the beginning to not be trigger happy, making sure that they had solid evidence before making an arrest because you got one shot at this. Yeah, so yeah you do. Not everyone on the team agreed um, wanting to make a quick arrest. Uh, Huckabee was known for his negotiating skills, so it was decided that he would do all the interviews and Jones would handle the technical side. Huckabee was a pretty seasoned officer, but would later talk about how the case affected him, saying, quote, I saw things in Vietnam and thought nothing would ever match that. Well, this matches that because it's Austin, Texas, right down the street from where we live. Arson investigator Melvin Stahl was brought in, obviously. Uh, after a meeting with all parties involved, it was decided that they needed fucking outside help, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, I mean, they had had murders, obviously. The guy has experience. He's got 150 murders under yeah, his belt. but, but sometimes but, you come across right. ones that, what the fuck? Austin what do PD, we do? yeah, they don't have a forensic unit. So they really had nobody to do ballistics, blood spatter, hair fibers, anything along those lines. Right. They only had somebody who did fingerprints. Yeah. Um, their only option at that point was the Texas Department of Public Safety's lab, um, which was very new, along with its staff, which was new and inexperienced. Yeah. Uh, the lab sent Irma Rios, who was the head of DNA operation, to the scene. According to later testimony, this was only her second arson case, and Jeez. she said she was given a handbook with proper procedures, but she wasn't familiar with any of them. Oh. Uh, due to it being arson, Jones wanted the ATF there. Mm-hmm. So he requested the ATF and they sent their national uh, response team rep, Char- Charles Meyer. Excuse me. Uh, him and Jones had worked together previously on a different arson homicide. 
Having the ATF involved would allow Jones to have a lot more access to things such as VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. It's a huge nationwide database for law enforcement that collects and analyzes violent crimes and allows officers to put in keywords to see if there are any similar cases to what they're looking for, Yeah, uh, which they did, and there was no matches. This was very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one in New Mexico in 1990. It was a bowling alley. Mm-hmm. Guys went in, um, shot all the people, robbed it, and then set it on fire. Oh, that was oh, the closest geez. thing. Yeah. Um, so, and also with the ATF, they would have access to polygraph experts, behavioral analysis experts, and wiretaps. Oh, yeah. I can write a search warrant for that. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the arson investigator was initially nervous about bringing in a federal agency so soon for fear of upsetting the team, but quickly agreed that it was needed. Yeah. Put your dicks away, guys. Yeah. If you need <laughs> like, it, For you real, need put it. your dicks away. Yeah. That's, that's all that that is. No. If you need help, there's absolutely nothing wrong nope. with getting out you want to you want to do right so what's what's the issue exactly uh they're yeah the fucking penis brigade so investigators found a spent 380 casing from uh amy obviously because she was only one child with a 380 in a clogged drain near the main sink and prep area close to where she was found Due to the significant amount of blood, it was believed that the girls had been allowed to die and bleed out, essentially, before the fire was started. Um, There was more fire damage to items closer to the ceiling, uh, containers on a shelf, the top top two steps of a ladder, excuse me. This indicated that the fire was started above ground level. Yeah. Melvin believed it was started on a um, metal shelving unit by the back door, um, and the girls were burned subsequently by radiant heat. Mm-hmm. There's another theory later on. Um, the processing of this scene was... Ugh. Terrible. Babe, it was it was not great. Yeah. Not great. Okay. Um, they did not collect as many footprints as they could have. Mm-hmm. Um, also, nobody wore booties or shoe, cover- shoe coverings. Uh. There was no log of people's uh, coming coming and going. Oh, God, that's so like the most yeah, important. Yeah, so there's no way to cross-reference for contamination. They didn't take the trash from the shop. And now I know we said we were going to do the Brown's Chicken Murders next, but a, a little tidbit. That's how they caught those guys. Yeah. They got DNA on a piece of fucking chicken mm. <laughs> that dude had been eating. So um, Rachel Reif was in charge of fingerprinting. She would later admit that she didn't dust for fingerprints everywhere you would expect people to touch, but just took prints on the prints that she could see with her naked eye. So tits on a bull is what you are. Cool. (laughs) Got it. Uh, The evidence was improperly stored and some of it was just fucking lost. Oh, Jesus. The melted phone from the restaurant was found years later at the fire department training center. What? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. The metal shelving unit. Oh, guys, come on. The metal shelving unit was wrapped in crime scene tape, but it was uh, later admitted that the shelf was actually being used to store other evidence. Oh, good job. Yeah, good cool. job. Uh, some shelves, the ladder with the top two steps burned, the mop and the mop, mop bucket were uh, moved to the alleyway, but then they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, in the garbage. Yeah, the back door lock, which could have been tampered with, also disappeared. Mm. Irma Rios. Good old Irma. Uh, she was in charge of the evidence at the lab. She, at no point in time, ever took responsibility for the missing evidence or gave an explanation for it. 
Good job. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the Emmy oh. finally removed the bodies from the restaurant, and Dr. Tommy J. Brown performed the autopsies. Uh, Sergeant Jones said he was less than friendly when him and Huckabee came to the office, and they speculated this was because of Les Carter. Uh, they also speculated that Dr. Brown did a rushed job because of Les Carter. Mm-hmm. The girls' autopsies were less thorough than other autopsies they had seen. Um, a big thing was they were not tested for accelerant. Really? Yeah. So wow. um, why they didn't do it at the scene because nobody smelled accelerant. Yeah. So, Okay. Um, it wasn't done, done at the autopsies, though, and it is speculated it's because Brown and Carpenter were pissed off at the police. Dude. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So you fuck up a case because of that? Yeah. What a yeah. goof. Um, trigger warning. Autopsy results. Uh, Sarah Harbison had been sexually assaulted, and it can't be confirmed whether or not it was with the ice cream scoop. Um, there were two separate sets of DNA found on Jennifer. Um, however, it was later determined that one of those belonged to her boyfriend, Sammy. They had had sex just prior to her coming to work. No. So I bet you he shit his fucking pants when they came and knocked on his door. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Amy Ayers had also been sexually assaulted. And it was reported that the girls and the area surrounding them were covered in yogurt and toppings. Um, Jennifer, Yeah. Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were burned beyond recognition. Uh, dental records, dental records were used to identify them. Um, I don't know if this is confirmed or not, but some say the fire burned so hot, uh, some of the girls' teeth were starting to burn, which teeth don't really burn. Um, the girls' bodies were melted into the floor. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, and it was speculated at some point that the styrofoam cups were placed yeah. on them. Now, styrofoam fucking burns. Yeah, it, it does. I don't know if it still does. It used to. So, it, it burns fucking hot, which is what they're thinking. Yeah. But the, they said the fire started above the ceiling, so it oh. comes out later. Um, so, DNA was entered into CODIS, which was actually very new in 1991. Yeah. And they did not get any hits. Um, I listened to a great podcast mm-hmm. about this, uh, Voices of Justice by Sarah Turney. Um and she gave this. There were 13 key points of the investigation that were being kept close to the vest. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one was how and where the fire started. Number two was that the key was found in the front door when the firefighters arrived. Number three was the money taken from the register. Four was the arrangement of the girls' bodies. Five had been what was used to tie the girls up. Six was the office key was still found under the register and that no one had entered the office. So that's six and seven. Eight, two of the girls' underwear was missing. Really? Um, number nine, a twenty-two and a three eighty were used. Mm-hmm. Number 10, Amy's brother's leather bomber jacket, which is what she had worn that night to the mall, was mm-hmm. also missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 11, they didn't disclose the bruise under Amy's chin. Number 12, they did not disclose that Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with. And number 13 was that she was shot twice with two different guns. Yeah. However, a lot of this information was already being leaked and talked about around town. Uh, the following Monday, a nationwide dispatch was sent off just describing the crime, see if anybody had anything similar. It makes you think that she was maybe the target. Shot Amy? twice, yeah. Yeah, I don't... Or she didn't die. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't... That just seems 
weird. Like, there's she, more she's to it. 13. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. There's, there's so many more questions than oh, there yeah. are answers. Yeah. Um, so the Statesman newspaper ran a story the same Monday quoting investigators uh, regarding what the girls were strangled with, that the back door was open and the front door was locked. On Tuesday morning, Austin PD released more information. Uh, they believed that there were two perpetrators. They also released that Amy was shot twice. She was the only one shot twice. And that they believed it all started as a robbery. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole city of Austin is just horrified and terrified at this point. They don't yeah. know what the fuck's going on. Um, hundreds of volunteers would come out to canvas the area and hand out flyers. The CEO of Bryce Foods, which was the parent company of the yogurt shop, flew out to Austin and offered a $25,000 reward after meeting with the families. Uh, He also took this time to defend the company, saying that all the hiring and closing procedures were standard across the board for the hundreds of stores that they had. Yeah. Um, The funeral expenses were paid in full by Bryce Foods. Good deal. Uh, The family would later sue Bryce Foods and settle for uh, approximately $12 million. Oh, really? Yeah. Later on, like way later. Yeah. Um, on December 10th, 1991, a funeral was held for all four of the girls together. Mm-hmm. And more than 1,500 people were in attendance. Sarah, <clears throat> Jennifer, and Amy were buried side by side at Capitol Memorial Gardens. Eliza was buried at Austin Memorial Park Cemetery. Mm-hmm. On December 14th, 1991, 17-year-old Maurice Pierce was arrested at North Cross Mall after police received reports that he was walking around with a 22 caliber pistol and 16 bullets. So the police were like, hmm, yeah. 22 caliber? Right. Cool. Um, so they go, they arrest him, they bring him in. Uh, Detective Hector Polanco insisted on interviewing Maurice. Mm-hmm. Earmark that name, it's coming back. Okay. Um, by the morning of December 15th, Hector Polanco said that Maurice Pierce had confessed to the yogurt shop murders and had implicated his three friends, 15-year-old Forrest Welburn, 17-year-old Robert Springsteen, and 17-year-old Michael Scott. Not believing the confession, Sergeant Jones questioned the friends. Yeah. Obviously. Um, All four boys gave vastly different stories about that night and what they were doing. Maurice, however, would say that Forrest borrowed his gun and possibly killed the girls. Um, He came back a couple hours later. So he borrowed the gun around 10. Yeah. Came back a couple hours later smelling like hairspray with a scratch on his face and six bullets missing from the gun saying that he had done something bad and wanted to do it again. Maurice signed a sworn statement at 2.30 p.m. and then was taken home to speak with his dad because they wanted him to wear a wire to get Forrest to confess. Yeah. So they set out to find Forrest. They drive around for two fucking hours. They finally find him, get in the car. And this, I don't, this this is weird. I don't know. The first thing Maurice says is um, he asked Forrest why he cut his hair. And Forrest said that his dad made him do it to hide his identity. Hmm. So this was never explained. Yeah. But that's, yeah. And I mean, it's that's, it's on, it, they have audio of it. That's interesting. So um, Maurice asked Forrest what he did Friday night. And Forrest is like, the fuck you talking? Like I was with you. <laughs> What are you talking about? So they're going round and round. Maurice is getting pissed and Forrest is like, what the, what? Yeah. He has no idea. Um, It was clear he didn't have a fucking clue what Maurice was talking about. Um, At one point, Maurice was like, you killed those girls. And Forrest is like, dude, I was kidding. Yeah. No. 
They both start crying. They're, they're debating who's more scared, yeah. you know. Um, and it was decided then that there wasn't enough evidence to charge them. They were released and cleared. Yeah. Now, the 22 had been taken from Maurice and it was sent out for testing. And when that came back, it was not the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the FBI behavioral analysts were going to create a profile. And yeah. they suggested... So now they have nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Um, and they suggested taking it to the media. Yeah. So, uh, let me see where he comes up again. There was, there's an issue. All right, I'll find it. Um, so, they said specifically go to Unsolved Mysteries in America's Most Wanted. Yeah. Um, while Jones appreciated the four patrol officers, he needed four more full-time people and at least 60 days. Yeah. Or until it's solved. Chief agreed. They created a task force with the PD the FD, the FBI, the ATF, the Texas DPS Intelligence, yeah. and Travis County Sheriff's Office, uh, and also the Travis County DA's office. Mm-hmm. Everyone met with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit and created a personality profile. Per their recommendation, Sergeant Jones uh, sent to the media saying that an arrest was imminent. It, this made, obviously, the front page of the statesman. Yeah. Uh, the following Monday, exactly one month to the day of the murders, Sergeant Jones gave a press conference saying he might have been misquoted about the imminent arrest. He would later admit the FBI created the lies for the media, saying, quote, I did what the FBI told me to do, and I got slammed for it. Um, shortly after this, though, Sergeant Jones releases the behavioral profile. Yeah. Um, they believe that it was more than one person involved in the murders and one had a dominant pers- personality. Um, they were probably white and in their um, mid-20s or late teens, mid-20s. Excuse me. Um, the, the perp, perp, I had to write perp, perp, with the dominant personality, didn't finish high school. He was considered an unachiever with below average grades and had a discipline problem. Uh, it was possible he had an exploding personality, quick to anger, especially when under the influence. Uh, he was impulsive, but would only become involved in a physical altercation if he had the upper hand and if his friends were present. Hmm. He was either unemployed or had a menial job. He had a history of changing jobs, was unreliable and absent. Yeah. He would most likely live with and are dependent on an older person, such as his parents. Uh, he would have been very familiar with the area, uh, frequents often, most likely living in the neighborhood. Yeah. He would have a uh, criminal history, abusive to women, and have no remorse but anxious because it, because it didn't go as planned and was nervous about the accomplices talking. Yeah. So this creates paranoia and possible confrontation amongst each other. Uh, they also state that they most likely immediately cleaned up and changed after the murder, then returned to the scene to watch. Afterwards, they would leave town and miss work. Uh, In February, a task force was given more resources. Jones would later state that he was pretty much given whatever he needed for the investigation, which is awesome. No one wanted to hinder it, obviously. By the end of the month, 12 billboards with the girls and, quote, who killed these girls were placed around the city. Um, 20 more were put up and the reward was pushed up to 100 grand. Good deal. Um. There was an insane amount of leads. There was mm. upwards of 100 suspects Oof. and more than 50 false confessions. Oh, God. And you got to follow every single yep. lead. 
Yep. What a pain in the ass. Uh, Huckabee and Chuck Meyer from the ETF were interviewing literally everybody they could get their fucking hands on. Yeah. Um, there were convicted serial killers. There was a man who had violent episodes, confused of raping his sister. Not, no, accused. I don't know what fucking word I just said. Um, and then they, they interviewed the two men from the bowling thing in New Mexico. Yeah. Um, everyone ended in a dead end and no leads. Colin, uh, Colleen, excuse me, Reed was taken from her, taken from the car wash, raped and murdered. So we had to pause for a potty break. Um, So a couple weeks after the yogurt shop murders, um, Colleen Reed was taken from the car wash, raped and murdered. Didn't, they had no leads on it. Uh, In 1998, a man by the name of Kenneth, Kenneth McDuff was sentenced to death for another murder and gave the location of Colleen's body in exchange for a better sentence who was convicted of um, a better sentence for his nephew, excuse me, who was convicted of drug charges. He at one point alluded to having taken part in the yogurt shop murders, but he never confessed. Um, He also never confessed to Colleen's murder. Really? Um, but they did. They did end up finding her body and two other women. Um, some people believe that he was the actual killer. However, he was executed in 1998, no so there's kidding. no way to tell. Yeah. Um. So they received a lot of prank calls, um, and false leads. One fucking douchebag called and said that he saw that the killer had put yogurt in the girls' vaginas. So the cops were Jesus. like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. And they, they go knock on his door. And he's like, I didn't make the phone call. So they played the tape for him. Good. Oh, I was just kidding. Yeah, yeah. that's fucking funny. Real okay. fucking funny, asshole. Um, one woman called in to say that her boyfriend did it. Because mm-hmm. she was mad at him. Oh, jeez. I bet they got <laughs> a lot of that. Um, another said that the friend told him that uh, he had done it. And he chopped them into pieces, which obviously. That didn't yeah. happen? No. Um, it, there were so many different things that the KKK was involved. The girls were decapitated. Um, it, it, some of them were just vile, mm-hmm. vile. Um, a few months after the murders, police actually released a composite sketch of the, uh, white or Hispanic male that was sitting in the car. Oh yeah. Um, tips poured in. Yeah. Neighborhood residents identified him as 19 year old Armando Razo. Uh, he resembled the sketch and had similar behavior to uh, the FBI behavioral profile. Mm-hmm. After the murder, he quit his job at Sonic, told his friends he was going into hiding. Ooh. Yeah. Um, the, st- the statesman, what? Oh, caught wind and ran with the headline, quote, teen arrested in yogurt shop murders. Uh, they hadn't even talked to the guy yet. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, good job, media. Uh, when he was actually interviewed, he had a solid alibi with three witnesses. <laughs> so, um, shake my head. The next person that they were told about who was a more likely match was mm-hmm. Mexican nationalist Alberto Jimenez Cortez, mm-hmm. um, along with his two friends, Ricardo Hernandez and Profario Via Cerrado Saavedra. I, say, I tried to practice. This. Say that name again. Porfaro. Mm hmm. Via Cerrado mm-hmm. Saavedra. Good job. We're going to call him Saavedra from now on. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Um, all three of them were actually wanted for the rape of a woman at an Austin nightclub a, a month before the murders. Oh, wow. Um, so Huckabee and jo- Huckabee, excuse me, and Jones obviously wanted their concrete proof. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so in the summer of 1992, the case and the sketch appeared on America's Most Wanted. Wow. After the show, more people called. And they're like, Bad. dude, it's Alberto Cortez. Yeah. It's him. It's got to be fucking him. Yeah. So Austin PD went looking for him. Um, they went looking for him, Hernandez, and Saavedra. Sergeant Jones notified the families but told them, don't get your hopes up because we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Um, the men were known for their brutality, the drug cartel, and crimes against women. They also left town right after the murders. So Chuck Meyer asked um, for permission for him and Spanish-speaking agent Jack Burnett. Why does that name sound like a famous name? Uh, to go to Mexico City once they had all three in custody. Yeah. Jones stayed back so the city wouldn't realize how serious this lead was. Because they figured if they saw him leave town. Yeah. So I was like, that's interesting. That is. Um, in August of 1992, Austin PD make a deal with the Mexican consulate. Uh, they will hand over the rape and kidnapping charge in exchange for being allowed to interrogate the suspects when found. Uh, it was a shit deal, but it was really the only option. Only thing they had. had. Yeah. Uh, so by October, Oct- October, October, Saavedra and uh, Cortez were caught. They were arrested in connection with the yogurt shop murders. Wow. Uh, they were flown to Mexico City and arrested and charged with the Austin nightclub case. They were found in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, they were also charged with drug trafficking and gun smuggling. Uh-huh. Um, the Texas DA said, quote, not only the people of Texas, but the entire United States have grieved with us over our loss. Uh, this case represents an unprecedented level of cooperation, and we look forward to continue working with the Mexican officials. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Mexico's deputy attorney general was absolutely against extradition to the United States because it's the death penalty. Yeah. That's why. Um, and said extradition was not part of the deal. Mm-hmm. We said you could talk to them. We right. didn't say you could take them. Right. So... Um, it would turn out really to just be detrimental. Yeah. Um, these guys would eventually confess to the murders. Really? Yes. So they, they confessed to the murders. Um, Saavedra was questioned by reporters, and when he asked why he did it, he just shook his head, but then it was reported, quote, he said he forced the girls to submit, he raped them, tied them up, and then shot them. So the families were like, Okay. You know, one of the moms said you want to feel good about it, but it, it brings reality back. This yeah. actually happened. Right. Um, Sergeant Jones was not convinced. Hmm. Not at all. Uh, the Mexican officials wanted access to the autopsy reports, and Jones was like, get fucked. Yeah. Because he said, quote, if we'd done that, they'd have every piece of information they needed to charge them, try them, find them guilty, and put them away for life. And we weren't convinced they were even them. Right. Huckabee and other Austin PD officials interviewed Saavedra and immediately said, um, <clears throat> he, Saavedra said, excuse me, that he might have killed the girls that night, doesn't remember, but he could have mutilated them and tied them up. They weren't mutilated. They were, yeah. So Huckabee was like, nah, yeah. I don't know. 
after the first day of interviewing them, like yeah, he didn't think it was them. Yeah. So both Cortez and Savadra eventually recanted their confessions, <clears throat> um, saying that when they were threat, they were threatened. Their families were threatened when they were being brought back to uh, Mexico City. They had plastic bags put over their head. Um, Hernandez was never caught, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but they said they were threatened into the confessions, and they. They didn't do it. No. Now, Barbara, Sarah and Jennifer's mom, still thinks it's them. It's really? Still, yeah, she's still convinced it's them. Uh, um, so Sergeant Jones... It's this, too, too iffy down yeah. in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're probably waterboarded. Right. You know, right. a lot of them. Right. I, I, I'm not convinced. So this was taking a toll on Jones. And this kind of broke my heart a little bit because I was like, dude, I can fucking relate. Like, it was affecting everything. He wasn't yeah. going home. Like, he was he was obsessed with this case. And I get it, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, it was to the point that um, Amy Ayer's dad, while they were at a basketball game, told Jones that he looked like shit and he needed to take a time. He needed to take time off. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, he had developed a close relationship with these families, obviously. Oh, I bet. Uh, he okay. asked for a fifty day, fifteen day, excuse me, administrative leave and was denied. Jesus, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, his psychiatrist had Just to fucking work mm-hmm. to, to, till your death. You know, his psychiatrist had to write a letter saying that he was exhibiting ninety percent of PTSD signs and symptoms. That's <laughs> still wouldn't have mattered with us. Um, <laughs> the psychiatrist recommended that he take a month off. So he was given some time off, but Jones didn't take the full 30 days. He felt compelled to come back. Yeah. Uh, Like a lot of the investigators, uh, Jones dedicated, he was dedicated to the case. And it all went unrewarded, obviously. They never caught anybody. Uh, He was eventually reassigned. Him and the families were not happy. He never asked for it, but they felt that they needed to get him out of there. Mm -hmm. And the higher ups wanted um, fresh eyes on it. Yeah. There was frequent policy changes, and there was a lot of uh, shakeup going on mm-hmm. because of that detective, Hector Polanco. Really? Yes. Uh, Jones was quoted as saying, quote, everybody has a Hector story. Everybody. Wow. Senior Sergeant Hector Polanco was a hotshot in the 80s and 90s. Um, <clears throat> he had, are you ready for this? Yeah. 100% clearance rate on all his cases. Oh, come on. <laughs> Okay. We didn't en- think about this said. before? Enough said yeah. already. Um, <laughs> he's just said that he had a knack for getting the truth out of people. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Uh, he was referred to by the public as the boogeyman or El Diablo. Mm-hmm. Um, or and the John Burge. Cops call them the Cobra. <laughs> yeah. Um, back then, though, nobody, like, coarse confessions weren't a thing. Right. You know? Right. So nobody really, people could not wrap their brain around yeah. somebody confessing to a crime that they didn't do. So right. nobody really, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, he fucked some people up. He did. Mm. Uh, in 1998. I, I can believe it. Christopher Ochoa was uh, arrested for the rape and murder of Nancy Dupriest. Um <clears throat> Hector Polanco told him, you're going to die if you don't confess. Confessing is the only way that um, we can help you. So this poor guy was like, fuck. He just figured I'll confess to it and I'll prove my innocence later. Yeah. Um, so 
There was also, uh, he said that a friend of his, Richard Dossinger, Danziger, helped him. Dude, false confessions. I get it. They have. Could you not implicate your fucking friends? (laughs) If somebody comes and knocks on my door and they're like, hey, so-and-so said you did this. Fuck you. No. How many times have I said it out loud? If you're going to commit murder, you don't tell anybody about it. Exactly. So don't come talking to me. Right. No, no. Right. No, no. Don't put my name in. Don't implicate your fucking friends. Don't put my name in your mouth. Mm -mm. I would implicate you because you're coming fucking with me, but (laughs) that's about it. Um, So six years into their sentence, uh, a Texas inmate wrote multiple letters to media and police departments taking responsibility for this murder. Um, Richard Danziger, unfortunately, was severely beaten in prison and had significant um, brain damage. Oh, wow. So... It took six years after that letter was written for DNA to prove that these guys didn't fucking do it. Oh, God. Yep. Hopefully they got a big paycheck. Um, so on February of 1992, I was going to look that up and I forgot, actually. Um, inmate Sean Smith was bragging about the murders. He had his interrogation alone with no recording and they had a confession six hours later. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um. <clears throat> Jones actually thought this could be possible, so mm. he was a little excited. However, with more questioning and a polygraph, which are bullshit, um, he didn't do it. Okay. So he said Polanco made him think he did it. Yeah. Which, yeah, you go that long without sleep and food and, you know. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Huckabee interviewed another suspect that Polanco had got a false confession from. For the yogurt chef murders. Jeez. Yes. Um, and knew he didn't do it and mm. reported Polanco. Good. Polanco was taken off the case within 10 days. Good. Um, after an IA investigation, he was terminated. Wow. Don't get excited. Oh, he sued geez. for discrimination. Got his job Was back. reinstated, had multiple promotions, and retired with a full pension and benefits. Oh, fucking A. Whatever. Are you going to pay for a dude with the brain damage? Oh, yeah. Man. Uh, so he was replaced on the case by Senior Sergeant Ron Smith. He's another charmer. Uh, he had shot and killed an unarmed 17-year-old. It's funny because I <laughs> what? used to work with a... Did you? Oh, yeah. Um, now, I won't comment on that because it, there could be multiple different things that happened. Obviously, I didn't look into it. No. Um, however, he, um, he had another suspect who was handcuffed and he sat on his head on a waterbed and fucking smothered him. Jesus. Yeah. Waterbeds come around you. Yeah. They're not like a normal bed. Um, also, so the Austin PD was just getting fucked left and right. Um, yeah. In October of 1995, they uh, formed a drug trafficking and money laundering task force. Uh, immediately undercover informants accused the PD of protecting the dealers. Um, in exchange for sexual favors, cocaine, oh my and a God. free ride to the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's the best one. <laughs> Chicks and Coke. Oh, man. Then throw the football in. Dude, yeah. That's, yep, that's the winner right there. Um, in January of 1996, Chief Watson announced fresh eyes on the yogurt case. Many believed it was to divert attention <laughs> from the other fuck-ups that are yeah. piling up quickly. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Homicide detective Paul Johnson was actually assigned to the case, but he was only a part-timer, um, which I don't think matters at all. He was a, he was a lone wolf. 
I don't, I hate when people That's, are described like I, that. I hate that. Um, so his job was to go through the previous investigators, um, shit pretty yeah. much. He quickly became as obsessed as Sergeant Jones. Yeah. Uh, there was more than 1200 suspects, 5,000 pages of handwritten notes Jesus. and 10,000 pages of reports. Oh God. Wanting to revisit the Mexico, Mexico, excuse me, Mexican nationalist confessions, but Mexico was like, fuck you. <laughs> no, yeah. they wouldn't let him. Right. So um, on Jan- July 31st of 1997, Chief Watson left for the Department of Justice. Mm. She was replaced. So Chief Watson was a chick. Wow. Um, okay. She was replaced by Bruce Mills, who was assigned as the interim chief. He gave Johnson a full team exclusively for the yogurt shop. And the first thing Johnson wanted to do was start back in 1991 and revisit the confession of 16-year-old Maurice Pierce. Yeah. See I cro- see all the stuff I crossed out? Oh, yeah. Keep going. I told you. It's a lot of fluff. It's a lot of fluff. It was a lot. Um, so they were, they were cleared in 96, mm-hmm. or 91 by Jones. Yeah. And then in 96 by uh, a different Johnson. Um. <clears throat> And then in 97, uh, lead detective Paul Johnson decides that even after two reviews, it really wasn't investigated properly. So um, at this point, the boys had gone their separate ways. They're in their 20s. Some of them are are married. Um, Maurice is very friendly when he talks to him, but immediately wants to recant his 1991 statement, saying, quote, I know I made a statement when I was arrested uh, that said Forrest told me other details about the murder. I don't remember any of that now. I know I was very nervous and I was trying to say things to get me out of the police interview and they were twisting my words up. Yeah, which happens. Um, Johnson tried to track down Forrest, who was on the run for unpaid parking tickets, but they finally found him. Um, Forrest says he doesn't remember shit about that day. They were all fucked up. Yeah. They were on shrooms and acid and pot and alcohol. Like, they were fucked up. I don't think they could have walked. You know, so he says they were probably at the North Cross Mall, but only says that because that's typically what they did on Friday nights. Okay. Um, He passed the poly. He was believable and he was very helpful. Uh, Rob and Mike had no information for them because they didn't remember shit. Uh, In February of 1998, Johnson spoke with Maurice, Rob, Mike and Forrest again and again. Nothing. Yeah. A task force, uh, excuse me, the task force was disassembled in March and Johnson was sent back to the street but couldn't let it go. In September of 1998, he sent the 22 to be tested again. Again, it was negative. Mm -hmm. Um, So now they shift their focus to the actual fire. The original uh, arson investigator, Melvin Stahl, um, kind of, he retired, but they wanted him to come back. Yeah. He asks Marshall Littleton to take a look at the um, former Austin um, fire investigators reports. Johnson wanted to know if the fire could be recreated using computer software. Uh, Littleton said it was possible, but not a good idea because it could, quote, eliminate a possible suspect. Hmm. So... Um, He asked Maurice to do hypnotherapy. Maurice's lawyer said, no, don't fucking do it. Maurice did it anyways. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. 
multiple tests to run again on the gun. Yeah. Again, nothing to place any of the four at the scene. Yeah, I, I think it's time to move on from mm. them. Johnson couldn't let it go. In December of 1998, um, <clears throat> a woman by the name of Reese Bryce calls Johnson to talk about some harassing phone calls that she had gotten prior to the murder. Yeah. It turns out that Jennifer Harbison had also gotten these calls, both at home and at the shop. Reese's apartment was broken into just prior to the murders. Nothing was taken, but her underwear was arranged on the bed with a kitchen knife placed on top. Ooh. She looked identical to Jennifer. Really? Um, Johnson brings her in for an interview. Now, she worked at the yogurt shop, too, obviously. Mm-hmm. So she men- mentions that the crawl space between the two stores is shared, the attic space, um, and said that they would hear noises from time to time. She said that they were cleaning one night and there were shoe prints on the toilet seat in the men's room and the tile above it were, the tile above it was moved. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. Yes. Right? Like just somebody watching you. Um, In early 1999, uh, Johnson asked Littleton again to run everything through the computer, recreate the fire. Mm -hmm. And again, Littleton said there was too much room for error. But if he had the ladder and the lost metal shelf, it might be easier, but they should hold off. Well, they don't, they don't have that shit. Yeah. It's gone. Um, the fuck? What? Oh, I don't know. Um, Jackson's answering for us, by the way. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah. So, um, Chief Stan Nee was now the new chief. Mm-hmm. He was on the job about nine months when he gave Paul Johnson another fucking task force. Jeez. Um, Senior Sergeant John Neff was the unit supervisor while Johnson acted as the case agent. They were given six cold case detectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kenneth McDuff was still an active suspect. He'd been executed at this point. Yeah. Uh, Along with the four Mexican nationalists and the four boys with a few other saintness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, On August 6th of 1999, Johnson held its first meeting and opened with a 205-slide PowerPoint called, quote, The Investigation Plan to Pursue Maurice Pierce. (laughs) Wow. It lasted four hours. Dude. Uh, Detectives Hardenstill and Laura, they talked to Rob's girlfriend of a couple weeks at the time. Her name was Kelly Hanna. So part of the story was that these boys had stolen... um, a Nissan Pathfinder, and they drove to the girlfriend's house so uh, Rob could break up with her. So she didn't remember much. Um, They start pressing her for information, and they ended up interviewing her for hours, and she was like uber fucking pregnant. Really? So she's bawling, and she's like, I'm sorry, it's my hormones. You know, I'm I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to help you. Um, They tell her that they were told that she was in the Pathfinder after the murder, which wasn't true. Her yeah. parents weren't home. She didn't let the boys in her house, and they just right. took a walk. So they didn't even get in the house. Um, <clears throat> then they ask her, who's the most likely to kill somebody? <laughs> and she says Mike Scott. So poor Mike Scott. Um, they then discussed if they were maybe too hard on her. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And one of the detectives said he thinks that she knows something, but he can't figure out what she knows. Oh nothing. God. She knows fucking nothing. Yes, she's pregnant and fucking... Dude, Come on. Enough. Um, Laura doesn't want to be hard on her, but the other one says, quote, if she fucking starts bleeding in here, that's on us. Yep. Um, 
Forrest was interviewed again, and again, nothing new. Thursday, September 9th at 9.15, the official interrogation began. He says him and Rob aren't friends anymore because uh, Rob stole Metallica tickets from him. Ooh, I'd be pissed too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Fuck. Um, Maurice, he said Maurice got the gun from kids that was uh, that were selling him drugs and said he hopes he's not lying to them. Mm. Wait, is this Rob's interrogation? I didn't write Rob. I'm sorry. Great job. No, this is Mike. Shut up. <laughs> okay, so this was this was Mike. Uh, Mike said at the beginning he didn't know anything. He yeah. didn't know what had happened. By 7.04 that night, he called his wife and stated, quote, Dear, I know more about the case than I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sergeant Jones would later comment on the investigation, saying that they were relying on a pyramid theory of investigation, which starts with a confession, and then you work everything around it. Um, you find a way to make everything fit, yeah. make the evidence fit. Yeah. Um, the longer the interview, the more he questioned himself. He would repeatedly say he could be making it all up and he really didn't remember anything. Yeah. He gets super agitated and police tell him he's free to go, uh, but he just wants to take a smoke break. Yeah. So while he's taking the smoke break, he's talking to a detective and says if he killed the girls, he thinks he would remember it. Yeah. Obviously. Well, you think. Um, as soon as he's back in the room, they tell Mike that uh, they know he did it and he's about to get the fucking death penalty. But if you confess, we'll help you. Oh, of course. Right. Uh, <laughs> we always say that. Three hours in, he agrees to a polygraph. Um, the polygraph uh, exam examiner, is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, comes in, sets up the test, asks a couple questions, and never does the test. Okay. And they don't release why. Um, when he's asked how much money was taken from the register, he says about 12 to $14. It was 540. Um, at one forty-three, his memory starts coming back. He says he went in for yogurt the day of, and Morris and Maurice, excuse me, and Forrest were casing the place. Uh, they went back and propped open the door. Um, and he says he doesn't remember hearing shots, but he only remembers the two coming back to the car, yelling at him to drive. Mm. Um, <clears throat> they take another break and after, or excuse me, after a couple hours uh, and convince Mike that he heard shots. So he wow. comes back and says, yeah, I probably heard him. Mm. So uh, a few hours later, Mike says maybe he was a little more involved than he initially remembered. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when asked what they were tied with, he said Venetian blind cords. They said, no, try again. He said napkins. <laughs> yeah, napkins. And they're like, um, that'll do it. No, try again. And uh, he says, electrical cords. Wrong. Um, he continues to say that he's not sure if this is real, but he can see it playing out in his head. Um, Rob made him shoot one of the girls or said that he would be shot. So he starts crying and shoots one of the girls. Um, he said the fire was started with a lighter and napkins and styrofoam cups were piled on the girls. The previous arson investigator will come out after this confession and say that he believes that now the fire was started on the girls. Oh. Um, so at uh, 5.35, he asked for a lawyer and to go home. Yeah. The cops say, maybe you just need a break. If you need an attorney after that, cool. So they take another smoke break. He comes back um, and says, can, can you talk to one more person? Yeah. <clears throat> It was uh, 
Robert Merrill, who was a 19-year veteran and was uh, working with Hector Polanco. Mm. He gets a confession. Of course. Uh, Mike repeats the story, but this time he's more specific. At 10 o'clock that night, he insists that he should go home after 13 hours. And they're like, okay, cool, go home, but come back the next day. He's like, okay. Oh, dude. At 10.30 a.m., he comes back the next day saying, listen, everything I told you last night, like, I don't fucking remember. Right. I didn't do it. Right. Um, he's he's getting pissed at this point. Yeah. So this um, investigator, what did I say his fucking name was? Robert. Robert Merrill. Mm-hmm. Brings in the twenty two and shows it to him. And he's like, is, is this the gun you used? Is this the gun you used to shoot people? No, it's not. Right. It's been tested, dummy. Oh, it gets better. Uh, when Mike says he doesn't know, Robert puts the gun to his head. Oh, my God. <sighs> He then gets on the stand in court and says he didn't do it. And they're like, cool, do you want to see the video? Because <laughs> we taped you, you dickhead. Oh, yeah. That's great. Uh-huh. So he has a gun to his fucking head. He yeah. folds. He folds. Yeah. That's it. Um, after Mike's interview, they picked up Rob. He also starts by saying he didn't do anything and says, quote, if I was there and I partook in it, in this, I would remember these things. Yeah. Obviously. To which the investigator replies, quote, you're the coldest guy I've ever talked to. Really? Really? Yeah. He hasn't talked to me. <laughs> um, so he, <laughs> his story starts to change. Um, he says that he was told by Maurice to shoot a girl in the back of the head. He doesn't know which one. No. Um, but says that he ended up shooting her in the shoulder, which isn't true. Nobody was shot in the shoulder. Uh, they keep pushing. What else did you do? Rob says he doesn't remember. They're pushing harder. Um, <clears throat> and then the investigator starts yelling, she wasn't dead yet, was she? Amy Ayers, obviously. Yeah. And that's why Maurice made him shoot her a second time. Um, the audio is awful. You can't hear it. So it really, in court, they're just going to have to rely on what the police said. Oh, really? Um what they said, this is, sorry, trigger warning words. Um, they said that they said to him, you fucking know, you fucking raped her, just say it. Rob appears super agitated in the video, and the cops say he said, quote, I stuck my dick in her pussy and raped her. Doesn't say which girl. They never specify which girl. Yeah. Um, on October 6th of 1998, all four boys are arrested. The community is like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Even the principal of the high school came out and was like, there's no way that they could have kept their mouth shut this fucking long if they did it. Yeah. Like, there's no way. Yeah. So uh, November 29th of 1999, Robert Mural testifies about uh, the series of events that would be presented by the state. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Maurice bought yogurt. Rob and Mike propped the door open and then they went back. The uh, force was a lookout. Rob and Mike made the girls undress and tied them up with their clothing. Maurice went to the register and got pissed because there wasn't more money. When he asked one of the girls where the, mo- where the money was at, uh, she said that was all and he shot her. He asked another girl the same thing and she said the same thing and he shoots her. Maurice tells Rob to rape one of the girls and tells Mike to do the same. Mike can't perform, so Maurice insists uh, that he shoot her instead. Mike and Maurice both shoot Amy once. They piled up the bodies, started the fire, and left out the back door. This is what the state is saying. 
Um, the testimony about the two men left in the shot was not allowed in trial. Really? It was hearsay, they said. Mm. Yeah. So the testimony was completely eliminated and not allowed. Damn. Um, instead of using the original arson reports from Melvin Stahl, they were allowed to present a different theory about how the fire started. Oh, Jesus. Um, Stahl said now, Stahl originally stated that the fire was started on a metal shelf mm. and the girls were burned via radiant heat. Yeah. Uh, he revisited the investigation with photos. And after seeing Littleton's new findings, which I can't find anywhere, uh, he states now that the fire was started on the bodies. Hmm. Just like Mike said in the confession. Right. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny how that happens. Maurice Hmm. and Forrest did not confess and were never charged. Wow. Um, Rob and Mike were charged. Now, don't you need more than a confession? Uh, in most cases, yeah. yeah. Okay. So Rob was extradited from West Virginia uh, to Texas on May 30th of 2001. He was then sentenced to death. Wow. It was converted to life because he was a minor at the time of the crimes. Mm. On September 22nd, 2002, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike was sentenced uh, to life after the jury couldn't unanimously decide on death. I couldn't spell unanimously. At least in um, in 2006, Rob's conviction is overturned by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Wow. They ruled that Mike's confession had been used inappropriately against him, you and think? it violated his Sixth Amendment right to cross-examination of witnesses. Yep. On June 6th of 2007, Mike's uh, conviction was overturned for the same reason. Yeah. So, they're not, not off, though. Well, okay. At this point, uh, the state's attorneys are preparing the cases for retrial. Excuse me. The defense asked for new testing to be done because it had been 15 years since the fucking DNA was tested. Mm -hmm. Uh, The DNA on Amy and Jennifer belonged to one man. Uh, The DNA on the clothing used to tie up Eliza was from a different man. Mm -hmm. And then the third man was obviously the boyfriend. Uh, The DNA didn't match any of the four boys. At the end of 2009, all the charges were dropped against Robin Mike. Um, because the convictions were voided versus overturned, it made them ineligible for any wrongful conviction compensation. Wow. Yeah. Rob tried and failed to uh, file many lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Just didn't. Yeah. Um, The theories of what happened evolved as more investigators got involved. Of course. Um, Now they're saying maybe they weren't all bound. Were they all laying face down when they were shot? Um, Yeah. Uh, was she was Jennifer hit with things falling from the shelf? That's why she was moved. Yeah. Um, like I said, Barbara still believes that the four did it. Yeah. Uh, in 2017, Austin PD entered a single strand of DNA from Amy's body to a national database. Uh, they found a match. Really? Um, <clears throat> it was entered into Public University of Central Florida's research database, and it was a YSTR strand, which is a male-only strand. And it will only show familial familial lineage. So it can't pinpoint an actual person, mm-hmm. but it could point out fathers, uncles, sons, oh, brothers, wow. but yeah. can't pinpoint the person. Yeah. Um, the FBI refused to release the familial lineage. Really? Saying that... Um, <clears throat> It's for privacy reasons. It's a private database, and the donors were promised that they would remain anonymous. Well, you let everything else go. 
what what would this have mattered? Yeah. Federal law prohibits tracing these samples to the actual individuals, which makes me think they can do it. Yeah. The, you know, scientifically. Yeah. Oh, um, I guarantee they, they can. So the Austin Police Department and the families continued fighting for the DNA. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, Austin, Texas says that the case is still open. Yeah. They're still interviewing people. They're still getting tips. Um, and I would have to look, I don't, I, I would have to look, but. I mean, it's like, it's probably like Lane Bryant. They, they yeah. probably still have mm-hmm. an investigator assigned to it. Right. I would imagine. So. So at this point, no arrests have been made. Man. And then. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be mistaken, so um, I believe in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, it was released that this y, um, YSTR, w- yeah. there was no match. Oh, really? So, which I, I'm sorry, I call bullshit on. How do you have a match and then you don't? Yeah. How, how do you, you, you do and then you don't? No, you like, do. It's, it has to hit like 25 points, and the first time it hit 19 of them. So... Yeah. Yeah. So they still don't know who fucking did this. Man. They have no idea. What a fucking cluster. Yeah. It's a huge cluster. And now my question is, is there no more DNA to test? There might not be. Or is, so when they extracted this DNA, did they extract it for the purpose of the YSTR? And that's all they took. So that's all they have left after testing for it. I mean, it could be. I would receive letters from the crime lab. Yeah. And it would state. Yeah. Like, do you want this tested? This is the last of the DNA. I mean. So, I mean, it, it could be. I would think if they had the proper DNA to be testing, they would test it. Yeah. You know, they put it into CODIS right after it happened. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Man, what a cluster. Yeah. Right? So... It's still unsolved, which Ooh. amazes me. What what the fuck was that? I almost had to like sneeze and cough at the same time. Oh, oh. That would have ended badly. Yeah, it would have. Wow. So that is the yogurt chop murders. That was good. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, you saw there, guys. I had like five. Yeah, like five other pages back to back, like front and, and back yeah. of info. It, you I hit all the points. Yeah. You hit all yeah. the points. I shouldn't say it was fluff, but it was just, it was the boys saying, well, we did this. No, we did this. Yeah, we took the bus. No, we didn't take the bus. Going back and forth. Yeah. And, <clears throat> so. Uh, you hit all the main points. That that was good. It's so. Just, it's, it's a shame it's such a cluster. Yeah. And I, I want to, I, I mean, I think I'm answering my own question because I, if they had DNA, they would obviously fucking be testing it, I would yeah. think. And if they do have DNA and if they're, they are testing it, they're just not talking about it. So it's sad. It is. It's sad. It really is. Yeah. It's horrifying. Like I can't even, ugh. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Well, so, that was an interesting one, Mama. Yep. So. There you go. So do we know what we're going to do uh, next? No. Uh-uh. Okay. So no. That, it'll, that'll be a surprise. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like we said in the beginning, we were going to do the Browns chicken murder, but um, we don't want to do two yeah. restaurant ones. Which I know is weird, but no. I get it. 
We have more to look at. Yeah, so we'll do that after the Patreon Waco one. I'm kind of excited about Waco. Yeah, it's good. And then, guys, Kurt Cobain's coming. We're gonna we're gonna do Kurt Cobain. We'll do that. So, So. and maybe the Twenty Seven Club with it. Maybe a little spiel. Ooh, yeah, that would be good. I mean, we could tie them together. Yeah, you could. Because I could just give short snippets. Yeah. So you really could. Yeah. I think that'll work. All right. Well. Any further business? I don't know. I I don't I don't know what fucking time it is. I still have to go to Target and buy Jackson pants. Yeah, I know. Which is funny because I have to buy him jeans and the kid fucking hates jeans. I know, but we got pictures tomorrow. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, the other boys <sighs> might be coming in like blue and black khakis, so it might fit him a little better than yeah. jeans. <laughs> Whatever. I don't even want to wear fucking jeans. So. Oh, there goes my yawn. Uh, your nephew said, uh, you better dress casual or I'm going to fuck you up. Oh, I'm dressing casual. Um, dude, did you think I was coming in a prom dress? Yeah. What do you think, a suit? <laughs> what did you, you think I was coming me? in? <laughs> fuck that. I want to get these pictures in oh. and get the fuck home and get back on the couch. Yeah. Yes. I didn't take a nap today, guys. Yeah, you That's didn't. breaking motherfucking news on a Saturday. I didn't that take a nap. Is. Holy shit. Yeah. Good job. I'm dying right now. Yeah, you're going to go to bed early. I probably am. Or I'm going to start another fucking case and be up till 2.30. Yeah, true. One of the two. All right. So thank you, guys. Uh, Patreons, thank you again. We have some new ones. but Sorry, will... I'm trash. Yes, Jamie is trash. Whatever. So we will list all the... Or name all the Patreon new Patreons in the next episode. Yeah. So thank you guys so much. Um, I feel like we're developing a pattern that we're recording on Saturdays. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a thing now. Yeah. So the dog right. made it through the whole thing. I know. How about it? Wow. Yay! And there well, he goes. Well, there he goes, dude. You're under the table. Don't <laughs> shake your ass. <laughs> all right. Thank you guys. Uh, we will be talking to you soon. Bye. Bye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.